Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. My name's Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast. Well, something that we've talked about a lot on the podcast so far is that you might need to be writing pilots if you want to break into television writing. Well, uh, one of the only resources available to teach you how to write a pilot is an ebook or paperback called Writing the Pilot, which was written by William Rabkin. Well, guess what? Today on the podcast, I have an interview with writer, author, and producer William Rabkin, author of Writing the Pilot. He's actually written and or produced hundreds of hours of dramatic television, and he still writes today. Psych, Monk, the Glades and other recent shows were written by him and going way back, all the way back to Spencer for Hire. He's got lots of great stories about writing in the industry and he's got the battle scars to prove the lessons that he's learned. He actually, with his writing partner, Lee Goldberg, wrote another book, Successful Television Writing, which is uh, published back in 2003, which I also consider to be a very helpful resource on television writing. And I highly, highly recommend that you get these books if you want to learn how to write and how to break in. Specifically, writing the pilot, I think, is a, is a tremendous resource. And it's very simply laid out. You can read it in an afternoon, and it gives you everything you need to know in terms of um, what the essential elements are in putting together a story for your pilot that will last 100 or 150 episodes with very, very current examples from recent shows so you can understand why shows like The Event or um, Flash Forward or even Life on Mars might not have worked as well as they could have. Um, you'll also understand why there's other shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer that'll go for 150 episodes. Buy it, read it, you will be happy that you did. Um, before we get to the interview, I do want to mention that um, we will be having a video tips today. It'll be all about the Oki camera controllers for Canon DSLR cameras. So if you have a Canon DSLR, um, if you are considering buying a Canon DSLR, you're definitely going to want to stick around after the interview with Bill Rabkin to find out more about them. But speaking about Bill, here we go. This is Gray, and I'm here with writer, author, producer, William Rabkin. How are you doing, Bill? I'm great, Gray. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. And I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Number one, because I, I got your book um, in, in 2003, Successful uh, Television Writing, and absolutely loved it. And then I, uh, when I heard that you were doing a, another ebook and which is now a book writing the pilot i snatched it up and loved that too and so it, it's I'm, I'm just excited to hear all that you have to share and i know that you've had a very successful writing career as well um, which is very important uh, to me because i know that there are many books that are not written from the point of a writer and it's nice to hear from the the viewpoint of somebody who's been in the trenches so welcome well thank you very much Cool. So uh, what we always do is we start with how you got started, because as much as we all have a, a different path into the industry, it's it's great to be able to to hear from and learn from how everybody got started. So so where did you grow up? I grew up in Northern California in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. uh, I, knew, I knew I wanted to be a writer from, I don't know, the age of 10 or so. And I just remember sometime in my early teens announcing to my family that I decided I wanted to be a writer 
and they all laughed at me because apparently I'd been announcing that for many years already. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was always, excuse me, always my path, uh, or always the path I wanted to travel on. So I, you know, originally started out as a teenager. I wanted to write comic books. I think my great inspiration actually was a, an issue of the Amazing Spider-Man that Jerry Conway wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the one where Gwen Stacy died. I was not much of a comic book reader at the time, but I remember picking that up and flipping through it and getting to the end. And my God, he had killed a regular character. Wow. Uh, and it just violated every, every rule I knew about the way, you know, series work, TV or comic books. And it just, it opened my eyes to possibilities. And that really was the moment I said, I got to do this. I'm not going to be able to do for other people what these people have done for me. Hmm. And so how did you go about that? Well, I uh, went off to college, uh, decided against going to film school as an undergraduate. I had in my very pretentious uh, teenage mind, the comparison between a Brian De Palma, who was a major director at the time, but who seemed to know only other movies, hmm. and Francis Ford Coppola, who clearly, if you see The Godfather, knew movies, but knew art and literature and music and history and was able to make a work of art that was so much richer than anything De Palma could ever accomplish. Hmm. So I thought, i got to go learn other stuff. So I went off to the University of Washington in Seattle, excuse me, uh, where I studied comparative literature and then came down to UCLA to get my master's in screenwriting. Wow. So you went away from California. That's not the typical route. Well, I'd been in Berkeley for, well, my first 18 years and it was time for a change. Hmm. So you're, you're back in, uh, in California and what happened from your master's onward? Well, actually, I didn't quite finish my master's. Uh-huh. Uh, this is something I'm, I'm dealing with now as I'm working in the academic world because I, what happened to me was what happens to the luckiest uh, film students. I, I got a job <laughs> just to back up. While I was at UCLA, I was working at the Daily Bruin, of course, the school paper, mm-hmm. and met an incredibly enterprising undergraduate named Lee Goldberg. Uh, we became good friends. Lee was, I think maybe 19, and he had already secured a deal through his journalism professor to write uh, a series of men's action-adventure novels to be called wow. 367 Vigilante. Uh, his journalism professor was an established thriller writer, so he got the deal, Lee did the work, they split the money, and when the first one of those books came out, it was just coincidentally the same week that a crazy person named uh, Bernie Getz shot a bunch of people on the New York subways. Mm-hmm. And for five seconds, vigilantes were the hottest topic in town. Everybody uh-huh. wanted a vigilante project. And Lee's inherited agent at William Morris in New York was able to run with these really trashy 357 vigilante books, sell them to New World Pictures, where coincidentally I was working as a reader and was able to give them glowing coverage. <laughs> and Lee's agent worked in the deal that he would get first stab at writing the screenplay. Wow. Uh, and, and, you know, New World really was basically just looking to blow him off. So I think they gave him two weeks to do a first draft. You know, which is not bad for a TV episode, but is unthinkable in features. Uh-huh. Lee had never written a script before. We had played around with some stuff together. I think I'd helped him plot his fourth book. 
Uh, he said, why don't we do this together? So we sat down and we knocked out this script, had a blast doing it, uh-huh. turned in our draft in the two weeks or whatever it was required, and I think to their great surprise, New World liked it enough, and the producer, Don Borchers, liked it enough to keep us around and write 5,000 other drafts uh, over the course of a year. Wow. That movie never got made. It's this crazy situation where you know, we had a green light, and then the director, excuse me, the producer, who was going to make a directing debut on this film, he had produced Children of the Corn and Tough Turf, and was really an up-and-comer in New World. Mm-hmm. Um, but he decided he wanted a new script. And it's like, here, put Act 3 in the middle of Act 2, and just nonsense, and we refused. We were fed up. Mm-hmm. And he went out and found some out someone else to do it for five cents and turn in this script. And as the head of production said to me, I have never seen a producer turn a a go project into a development deal before. (laughs) But that is what happened. Um, And the project was dead. Although Don, every five years or so, Don will, will pop up and be, have some new, uh, new way of getting it off the ground again and wants to know if we're interested and we, you know, nod and smile and never hear from him again. Uh-huh. I do know that about 15 years ago, uh, he had interest in getting it going again and he sent us uh, a rewrite that he had commissioned and, and that rewrite was by, uh, I think it was Michael Blake who wrote Dances with Wolves. Oh my goodness. Long before he wrote Dances with Wolves, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, that, that never happened. Uh, but Lee and I really had the bug and, you know, we had a taste of success. We loved television. We grew up watching television, watching mm-hmm. dramatic television. That's all he ever wanted to do. And I didn't have a problem with the idea of working with TV. It seemed like fun. So we decided we would write, uh, what you have to do, we write a spec script. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wrote a spec episode of Spencer for Hire. And we did specifically what I would tell any aspiring writer not to do. We wrote the script as we thought the script, the show should be, not exactly as it was. Uh-huh. Uh, we wrote a funny show. We tried to tone down the pomposity, uh, tried to make it hue a little bit closer to the Robert Parker books instead of the way the series had been running. And we, at the same time, we got a new agent, our book agent in New York, introduced us to a young woman at William Morris who was on the final track of the agent ladder. You know, you start off in the mailroom and you work up to be an assistant. Mm-hmm. And she took our script and she loved it. And um, she did what you're not supposed to do. She sent it to the studio, Warner Brothers, where they made Spencer, and to the executive producers of Spencer. Wow. And yeah, as I say, I say this in successful television writing, and I'll say it to anybody, you never want to send your spec to show it's written for, because all the people on that show can see is what you've done wrong. All the little things. His apartment doesn't look like that. Uh-huh. He's never, he's right-handed. Anyway, uh, that was that, and we didn't hear anything for a year. And, you know, we sort of set about to trying to write a follow-up spec for something else, and we were both working in journalism and really being lazy about writing a spec. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we at that point was working at a trade paper called Electronic Media, and he got a call from uh, Bill Yates, the uh, executive producer of Spencer for Hire. And, you know, it had been so long that Lee was thinking this was about some article he was writing, though he couldn't imagine what it was. <laughs> and Bill, Bill Yates said, uh, you know, we just read your script, and, you know, we'd like to buy it and start shooting it on Monday. No. Absolutely. It, it, it was the most amazing thing. First of all, 
the guys who ran Spencer were the nicest people in the world. Bill Yates had been in the business for a long time. He'd been on the streets of San Francisco. I think a lot of other Quinn Martin shows and Steve Hatman. I can't remember where he came from, but a lot of similar shows. Uh-huh. Real old school gentlemen, and they had a terrible problem. They had a script that, that fell out that just, you know, it was in the middle of prep and it was never going to be ready to shoot. It was just wow. terrible. And this was back in the olden days when a season's budget would include a couple of dollars to abandon scripts. That's gone away now. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they dumped it, and Bill Yates was so desperate trying to figure out how the heck he was going to get a new story and script ready in four or five days. He started doing the unthinkable. He just picked up scripts off his coffee table and started leafing through them. And I don't know how many he had read before he hit ours, but he hit ours, and he fell in love. So we were, you know, in the Writers Guild, professional writers, and in prep within, you know, a day. Wow. And when they shot the episode, I, this, I know this sounds insane, but I think they changed, like, a line of dialogue. I mean, they just shot our script. Wow. At the time, I didn't know how crazy that was, but they did it. And then they invited us back in to pitch some more, and we wrote two or three more episodes of that show before it was unfortunately canceled because uh, it was one of those weird things. The ABC creative loved the show, but ad sales felt it was old-fashioned, and they wanted to bring on a new Aaron Spelling show about a women's health clinic uh, in its place. Uh-huh. So, wow. Sure. I mean, that that is just, I mean, there's there's more than one unbelievable thing about that story. I mean, first of all, uh, you, you just never do that. You never send a, a script to the the actual show. And it, I've heard of crazy cases where it actually worked to get a person on staff, but not to shoot that script. Like that. I, I agree. It, it is insane. Now, Spencer Hire had actually done this once before. I don't know if the turnaround was as fast or the script was as pristine, but we were actually, they set us up with the young writers who had sold them a spec the year before. Uh, there are a couple of guys named Howard Gordon and Alex Ganza who are currently, you know, the brains behind Homeland. Wow. 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 So, okay, so you're in the guild. You've got a couple of scripts now, Spencer for Hire, and uh, and you're off to the races, right? I mean, after that, you you started doing a whole bunch of shows. But tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, it feels like at the time it didn't feel quite, <laughs> quite that fast. Uh, I think we did an episode of uh, one of the worst shows ever made called The Highwayman for Glenn Larson, <laughs> which was a fascinating learning experience, uh, really a completely different side of the TV business from working for Bill Yates and Steve Hatman. And then as we were sort of gearing up for, you know, to go out and hit our first staffing season, it was 1988 and there was a writer's strike. Mm. So brand new professional writers with pretty much no savings, dying to get rolling, and we were on strike. Wow. So we spent those months, and that was a long strike, if I recall. You know, we were pretty active in the guild and pretty active in, in the strike. <clears throat> this sort of kept us busy a little bit, but insanely frustrating, as, as you can imagine. Yeah. In retrospect, I probably should have spent more of that time writing more specs, but oh, I'm a professional now. <laughs> so as soon as the strike ended, you know, it was a mad scramble for jobs. And we ended up as staff writers on a new show called Murphy's Law, which starred George Siegel and Maggie Hahn and Josh Moscow. Mm-hmm. And you know, our agent was desperate to get us on the show. 
specifically because it was being run by Michael Gleason, who he created and run Remington Steel, and she just thought we would be a great fit with him, which mm. indeed we were. He was the one of the greatest teachers I've ever had. We learned so much from him about story construction and dialogue, but also he and his supervising producer, Ernie Wallengren, were both tremendously generous, tremendously trusting, and tremendously lazy. So oh, yeah. it was a great combination of the boss. You know, if we showed interest in, you know, we'd like to learn how to how to cast a show. We'd like to learn how to do post-production. They were happy to teach us. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we learned, you know, as fast writers, we just learned top to bottom how a TV show works. And it was great fun. I mean, the, the, if, you know, the ideal story of the show would have been a great hit. We all become stars on it. Um, you know, unfortunately, really nobody ever saw it. And mm. you know, we premiered the same time, same week, I think, as Murphy Brown. Oh, my. When I told, yeah, I know. When I told people what I did for a living, they said, oh, we love that Candace Bergen. <laughs> <laughs> After a couple of months, I just gave up correcting them and said, yeah, we do, too. Uh-huh. Wow. And so f- from there, you went to Hunter and Baywatch. <laughs> yes. The you know, funny thing is, Murphy's Law was on up against Hunter, and we always used to make fun of Hunter, uh-huh. which is just uh, has shown me once again you should really be careful about the things you say because they're going to come back to bite you. Uh-huh. Um, I remember specifically an argument with ABC Standards and Practices because we use the word morons in the script, and that was oh, considered offensive. And I remember telling her, we're not going to send any morons. It's Saturday at 10 o'clock. All the morons are watching Hunter. Um, but yeah, Hunter was picked up early. Uh, I actually think this was a, a, it was a mistake on our part. It was a mistake on our agent's part to put us on a show that was really not well respected, mm-hmm. um, not well viewed. And, but you know, she wanted to get us in, uh, to Steve Cannell's company, which was fine with both of us because we both love Steve Cannell's work. Mm-hmm. Um, this was really on the outside since Fred Dreyer was at war with everybody, and I think Steve had just backed off. There was a new executive producer in there, a guy who was very impressive when he met him, a former journalist, foreign correspondent, a tough guy, smart guy, and we're excited to work for him, and it just it just was a disaster from day one. Uh, this was a man who was just not capable of making and sticking to a decision. Mm. And when it comes to being an executive, whether you're a showrunner or a producer or a director or you know, running Sears, the only skills that are absolutely necessary are to be able to make a decision, to be able to stick to that decision, and to be able to communicate that decision. Mm. As long as you can do that, everything will run. Yeah, you know, If you make the right decisions, everything runs well. If you make the wrong decision, everything runs badly. If you don't make any decisions, it's a disaster, and the whole thing was a mess, and, you know, had we come into that situation later in our careers, I think we would have toughed it out, but we were so unhappy mm. and just so stressed that we begged off the show after the month, and, you know, it was, that was not a great career move, but it was really, we, for our preservation, we had to do it. So then we were, you know, it was a month into the TV season, all the jobs were filled, and we got a call from our friend Ernie Wallengren, who had been the supervising producer of uh, Murphy's Law. And he said, well, I'm here. I've just taken over this show called Baywatch, and you want to come work for me? 
Wow. And we, and we said, well, can we see the pilot? And he said, no. <laughs> no. Uh, the, the dog ate the pilot, basically. You, know, you cannot see the pilot. You just have to tell me whether you come work for me. Because if you see the pilot, you won't come on the show. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, you know, we loved Ernie. Ernie was the most wonderful man in the world. Uh, we were gone anywhere with him, even to Daywatch. And, you know, we needed to work. So we signed on to Daywatch. And it was... They watch. <laughs> you know, it was it was an impossible show to write. And I say this knowing that after our season was canceled and the creators bought the show back, it ran for a hundred years of syndication and they did zillions of episodes <clears throat> and they didn't find it uh, impossible to write. But it was created by uh, Michael Burke and Doug Schwartz. Doug Schwartz is a nephew of Shirley Schwartz, the son of Lloyd Schwartz. I mean, he, Shirley Schwartz, of course, is a genius behind Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. And it, if you look at particularly the Brady Bunch, I mean, it's genius. And the reason it, it stays fresh today for every new generation of kids is that it's completely removed from any actual human experience anywhere in the world. There's no real life anywhere. Those Brady characters exist in this bubble. They, mm-hmm. they there's like a beautiful job making fun of that in that first Brady Bunch movie. Well, Baywatch was kind of the same way. There was no real human beings. These were people who just wanted to be lifeguards. <laughs> and, you know, they brought in Ernie to run the show because he had experience writing about real people. He'd started on the Waltons mm-hmm. and he'd run the Falcon Crest. So we're trying to find ways to tell stories about real people. And these characters, there's just nothing to do. I remember our supervisor producer, a guy named Bill Schwartz, just yelling in frustration one day that I could come up with stories for the Home Shopping Channel, and I can't come up with a story for this thing. (laughs) Even even structurally, it's flawed. If you're doing a a detective show, which they still had at the time, or a cop show, at the beginning, someone comes to the detective and says, help me, I'm in trouble, you need to get me out of this trouble, I don't understand what it is. Mm -hmm. And then the two of them are teamed up together for an hour as the detective figures out what the problem is and gets gets her out of it. You know, a lifeguard sees someone drowning, jumps in the water, pulls him out, sends him on his way, and there's no relationship. So it was it was not in terms of writing, it was not a pleasant year. Um, mm. But we were working down at the old Culver Studios in in Culver City, and there were ocean breezes, and we shot out on the beach, and it was in in that way, it was a very pleasant time. Hmm. None of us were mourning when the show was canceled. <laughs> well, so uh, so let's um, maybe speed up a little bit. And uh, you worked on a number of shows over the next few years. Uh, one personal favorite of mine was Sliders, uh, and uh, I mean Cobra, Cobra, uh, Cosby Mysteries, Deadly Games, Stick with Me, Kid, Sequest, DSV, Diagnosis, Murder, Martial Law, Near Wolf Mystery. I mean, tons of stuff. Um, yeah. And uh, and actually, you you continue to write uh, um, uh, Psych Monk, The Glades, lots lots of stuff. Maybe you can just give me some highlights over that time. Um, what were some significant things that maybe you learned or or that surprised you or uh, that you think our, our listeners could could learn from? Well, for me, the most significant time in my career was when we were running Diagnosis Murder. Mm-hmm. It was a the job we took it. We took as supervising producers. Because it was the last job in town, and we just thought, oh, my God, this is going to kill our career. It's a show that 90-year-olds watch and nobody <laughs> else cares about. Uh-huh. And, you know, we had just had an epiphany a few weeks in. You know, it's like, well, 
we're bored by the show. Our viewers must be bored by the show. We've got to find a way to entertain ourselves first, and maybe people will come along with us. So we set out to start telling real, honest mysteries to really address the central franchise of the show. I mean, Dick Van Dyke played a doctor who solved crimes, which was really just another way of doing murder she wrote. Mm-hmm. You know, an older TV star in a profession solving crimes. And we just said, but it's about a doctor, so let's make everything all the clues medically based, and let's use that as part of our franchise. And let's start playing. Let's tease our audience. Let's entice them. Let's have fun. Mm. And it really works. And after we spent our year supervising producers, uh, the executive producer at the time left, and CBS gave us the show to run. And wow. we just had, had a blast. It's like, let's do whatever we want. We did. We told the stories we wanted to do. Uh, we did lots and lots of stunt casting, so we spent our years meeting these great stars from the past. Uh-huh. Um, and it was the one time where our I just felt everything we felt instinctually turned out to be right on that show. Wow. And I don't think I've ever had anything else in my life that's worked out like that. Wow. So that, that was great. And you were there, what, five years? No, we... Uh, well, Michael Gleason was running the show in its second season, and he didn't have money for his staff, so we did, I think, five freelance episodes for him. Hmm. Then we did one year of supervising producers, and we ran the show for two years, and then we just thought, we don't have anything left to say in this hmm. arena, and we have to go. So. Wow. Okay. And so now, um, that's 1999-ish. I imagine it was around then that you started thinking about writing your book because it came out in 2003, right? Successful television writing. So it must have written in 2001 or 2002. Yeah. So, so, so tell me about how that happened. What, what made you and Lee decide that you wanted to do this? Yeah, I think we're at a, at a high point in our career, the high point uh, in terms of our, our craft. And I think we had a little lull after martial law was canceled. And just talking about the stuff we had learned over the years. I think I've been teaching for the UCLA extension, um, both uh, screenwriting and TV writing, and just thought, you know, it would be fun to sort of sit down and write down what we know because it's all stuff that's in the back of our head. It's all stuff we do by instinct now. Hmm. It would be nice to sort of put it down, not only to share it with other people, but to make ourselves explore our own assumptions and our own basic knowledge. I, you know, the the writing of that was really fast, and we just went back and forth really quickly, and just had a great time doing it, and sent it to our agent, and she managed to set it up with Wiley pretty quickly, as I recall. Mm-hmm. And and as a, it was a great book, uh, I think it's still very respected today. But um, you you mentioned in writing the pilot that, and this is totally true, that the landscape in two thousand and three is very different than the landscape right now, and uh, in particular. Um, something that you talked about in that book was uh, was writing specs, and specs was your way in. And now that's just not the case. <laughs> so, um, t- tell me a little bit more about about uh, about that, about how the landscape has shifted. Even, I mean, it's not even ten years. It's not even ten years. And when I look at successful television writing, I'm really shocked. We spend so much of that book talking about the four act structure, and while most of the structural stuff is still true. All networks have moved away from four acts because they're so desperate to cram in more commercials. They now have five, six, seven, and eight acts, mm-hmm. I mean, and that—that's just excuse me, upending decades of of TV tradition and and radio tradition before TV tradition. So everything is is up in the air. The 
the landscape for what people are buying is, is nobody knows anymore. You know, the I think the networks are working out of sheer panic. They seize at anything to try to find something that will appeal to the audience they crave. Networks are still relentlessly targeting 18 to 25-year-olds at a time when 18 to 25-year-olds are increasingly turning away from series television Mm -hmm. to computer games and uh, the Internet and anything else that's out there. So instead of trying to sort of build the audiences that are used to television, they're just throwing anything at the wall, which is why you'll see this season, for instance, how many pilots were there set about fairy tales, fairy tales in modern life. Mm-hmm. You know, why? I, I, as far as I can tell, because Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland made a billion dollars worldwide. Yeah. And draw drew in a young audience. I would say, oh, we've got to be fair. Uh, American public is dying for stories about fairy tales. Yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> I don't think they are. They they seem to be responding pretty well to Once Upon a Time, not so well to Grimm. Might might have something to do with the quality of both shows. Hmm. But you know, it's just this desperate panic to find the next thing, the new thing, and that extends, I think, to finding the next voice. Hmm. There, there are two sort of strange, strangely opposed threads in the way TV hiring is working. On the one hand, more and more of the pilots that are ordered, ordered are coming from fewer and fewer people. Mm-hmm. You know, they order five pilots from, say, Greg Berlanti in a way that, you know, they used to be spread out more. Because uh, they they want the safety of the guy who's had the hit. At the same time, I think they're really looking for something that is new and unquantifiable, and it's that bold, new, fresh vision. It's you know the Mad Men. It's the mm. thing that takes the country by storm. So I think they're open to that new, fresh voice they've never heard before, who they will then team up with Greg Berlanti, or who they will then force to write the same shows that everybody else is writing, but at least they can say, look, we have this new, bold, fresh voice out here. Mm-hmm. Well, and and it's funny because um, we've we've had some really massive franchises in the feature world, but um, in terms of that young audience, there haven't been the same kind of franchise hits and uh, and so it seems like there's there's more creativity, at least in the, in that younger uh, demographic, in features than there is in in uh, in television. There seems to be. I mean, I can't remember the last really enormous drama hit on TV. I'm thinking it must be Lost. Mm-hmm. Maybe House. House might have come a year after Lost. I can't remember. But House is a very old-fashioned show. Just sort of tricked up with a new tone. You know, Lost was a bold new vision, and then all four networks set about trying to do what networks always do, which is recreate that bold new vision beat for beat, and of course all those shows fail, just like all the attempts to recreate Friends 20 years ago fail, Mm -hmm. because when audiences find something new, they like it because it's new and interesting, not because it's just like that thing they think is new and interesting. Hmm. Well, let's uh, let's move over to talking about pilots because, um, as as I as I mentioned and as you you mentioned in in your book, now it's very different. Even though specs still are asked for, but uh, it's much more common that the first thing people want to see is 
is a pilot. And um, you uh, wrote a, a dozen or so pilots yourself, and then you had the idea of writing. And I, I, I'm just guessing because there isn't a whole lot out there that you saw that there wasn't a whole lot out there about writing the pilot. But tell me about um, about why you wrote that book. I was really surprised. I, I've been doing an online TV writing course through something called the Writers University, mm-hmm. the Writers Store runs uh, for a long time, and and there's always know, can I write a pilot in here? Is there a course about writing a pilot? Which there isn't. And I started to think about what goes into a pilot. I figured somebody must have written that book before because there are 4 million books on screenwriting out there. And I one day I thought I'd check Amazon and check Google to see if somebody had written this book. And I was really shocked to find out that they hadn't. And there's so many people who want to write a pilot right now. It is a land rush. And in the 1970s, everybody was writing the next big screenplay. And I guess in the 1950s, everybody was writing the next, the great American novel. Uh, everybody now is writing that pilot. Uh, many of them, I think, inspired by Mad Men and The Sopranos. Many of them because serial television offers such a rich field for storytelling. Many of them because they're aware that if you sell a show and it gets on the air and lasts for five years, you are just going to be incredibly rich. So basically the same motivations for, you know, novelists and screenwriters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard a lot of pilot pitches and a lot of students talk to me about writing pilots. And there just seemed to be a fundamental lack of understanding of what a pilot needed to be. Mm-hmm. So pilot, people would approach this as if they were writing a feature script but half as long. Mm. They're just set out to tell a cool story, introduce some characters, wrap it up, and then say to be continued. And a pilot is so much more complex than that. You're setting up, you need to set up a franchise, a set of conflicts that can power 100, 150 stories over many years. It's really hard to do. As you can tell when you see, you know, even though networks keep going to these same guys who write pilots, a lot of their pilots just don't work. And these guys are the best in the business. Mm. J.J. Abrams is perfectly capable of putting on a pilot that's a stinker because it's really hard. Yeah. Uh, and, well, and, and let's just, just pause there for a second. I mean, I and I, and I totally agree. All the examples you you put in your book, I mean, flash forward the event – um, and, and even, I mean, I'd go further with life on Mars. I actually stuck it out for, for a good portion of that series, just cause I, I loved the characters so much, but I just felt like, Oh, could this, it, it could have been so much stronger. Um, but when you, when, when you think about how many thousands of, of times every year, perfectly great TV writers sit down with the, with the studios and pitch um, their their pilots, and then hundreds every year are written, and hundreds are, um, I mean, shot, and and then a bunch go to series. Why are I mean, you'd think with with all of these incredibly talented people, um, successful writers, wouldn't they know better? <laughs> well, yeah. You know, in some cases, you can always blame the writer. I'm I'm always happy to do that, but. I think one change has happened over the last, I'd say, 20 years. About 20 years ago, uh, the government repealed the what's called the FinCEN rules, the financial interest and syndication rules. Before that repeal, networks could only own a tiny amount of what they put on the air. And 
And so all the TV shows were supplied by independent producers, uh, Steve Cannell, uh, mm. uh, uh, Carsey Werner, Amanda Bach. And once those rules were repealed, you had this vertical integration from networks on down. And it took an important voice out of development process. A lot, the, the good independent producers, uh, Aaron Spelling was clearly one of the best. I've never a fan of many of his shows, but a genius at, at making shows work. These guys, frequently former writers, or at least people with a real understanding of how story worked. And they would be there developing the shows with the writers, crafting them for the long run, and then defending them against the network mm-hmm. or collaborating with the network to make them even better. All those independent producers are gone. So now it's just the writer and what's a little, call, a little pod production company. We'll get to that in a second. Dealing directly with the network. And, you know, network executives run the gamut. I and mean, there are some who are really smart, wonderful, talented, interested people. But an you know, awful lot of them are MBAs or you know, just business guys or advertising guys or promotion guys who are over here in creative now because they know how to sell. And they don't have a fundamental understanding of what makes a show work, what makes a story work, what makes a character work. And they micromanage everything. So they are giving specific notes on how a script has to work to a writer who, in many cases, actually knows a lot better. Hmm. Uh, and then, you know, to make matters worse, they've invented this new realm of executive producers. Having gotten rid of the real independent producers, they've now invented these pod production companies. It's basically some guy gets fired from a network, uh, and his friends in the network like him, so they give him a production deal. So now he's got some money to bring in a writer and pitch, and he's now an executive producer. He's just a former network executive. He has no no more skills, no more abilities than he did when he was in the network screwing things up. Now his real function in life is to siphon off a chunk of the writing budget. To you know, it's like a paycheck protection for network executives, and so you don't have that strong independent producer championing good TV anymore. And I think you can feel it hurts. Uh, I mean, I, I watched a lot of pilots this season when they're coming on the air. Mm-hmm. And time after time, it, everything felt the same. Everything felt like old television. Mm. Nothing nothing really jumped out and said, you got to watch me. The, you know, kind of cool ideas, cool headline ideas like the Playboy Club and, and Pan Am. Once you turn it on and start watching, it's like, oh my God, this is every show I've ever seen before wrapped up into one package with bad CGI on top. Hmm. You know, if you wonder why people are turning off network television, it's because everything's the same. At least on many of the cable networks, the executives are, I believe, much more hands-off and you really get a sense of voice coming out of the show. And then you have to choose, do I like this voice or do I not like this voice? Do I want to watch this or do I not want to watch that? But, you know, they're willing to take risks. And the ultimate risk is somebody will really hate this show. Mm. But the flip side of that is somebody will really love this show. And I think the standard network approach is, well, no one will really love this, but they won't hate it either. It'll be right down the middle, and that's how you make a hit. And of course, that's not how you make a hit. That's never how you make a hit. Mm-hmm. Well, just 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 imagine that. And, and, and I've I've heard it said, and, and you even said uh, close to the, the ending of your 
um, your book that the you could follow all the advice in writing the pilot, write the best pilot ever, and it's probably not going to be made. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, but I just just imagine somebody could. How in this landscape could this great pilot get made? How could it get made? Imagine I have written the best pilot ever, um, okay. but this is the landscape with, as you describe these these executives that aren't writers and and all that kind of thing. How would it? How could that get made? Uh, if it is indeed the best pilot ever, then hopefully somebody will see it and fall in love with it, and will bring the script to someone else who falls in love with it. The script itself is probably not going to be enough to get it made, but if it's that great, then people who can get shows made will fall in love with it. So, you know, if an actor who everybody wants to be in business with falls in love with it, you know, Johnny Depp reads his pilot and says, well, I can make $40 million doing a movie, but I want to make $150,000 a week doing this TV show because it's that good. Mm-hmm. Well, if Johnny, if Johnny Depp wants to do it, somebody is going to put up the money. If, you know, a powerhouse producer, uh, Berlanti or Jerry Bruckheimer, falls in love with it and is willing to put his entire weight behind it, yeah, something may well happen. If a high-up high executive at a cable network or even a traditional network falls in love with it, yeah, something could well happen. If a script is that good and doesn't have things about it that are just completely unproducible, then, yeah, I think somebody, enough people will fall in love with it that something could conceivably happen with it. The question is, how do you, how do you get it to people? How do you get them to fall in love with mm. it? How do you get them to read it? And that's, of course, always, you know, always a great conundrum for any writer. One could argue that if your writing is that strong, um, you'll, you'll, you'll eventually get there. I tend to think so. I'm, you know, you can probably tell I'm a little cynical about the machinery right now. I think we're we're in a very bad time. Mm -hmm. I actually think we're in a pretty bad time in movies, too, with some bright exceptions. I think the increasing corporate control in a lot of areas uh, of the media is really damaging. They've managed to essentially destroy the entire music business, and there's a move to do the same thing in TV, you know, because... The, the corporate mindset is to duplicate, 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 you know, put out more widgets. This is a hit. We'll, re, we'll make more of them. You know, the music business, well, I think finally killed the music business was boy bands and teen girl singers. Hmm. When you had a couple of superstars, that's all that was on the radio. And so the only people who listened to the radio were kids who wanted to hear boy bands and teen girl singers. Kids that age are pretty fickle. And they got tired of them, so they went away. Meanwhile, the entire audience that was out there for anything else was gone, never to come back, because by that time, they started putting their iPods on shuffle with Pandora. And I, I fear that's the way the TV industry as it is now is heading. Hmm. And the bright side is that I think, I, I know people have been saying this for years, but I maintain there's going to be a breakthrough in distribution. You know, it's now possible for you to take your great pilot script and to shoot it. And shoot it essentially for free because the equipment is free. You can now edit it for free because the equipment comes bundled in with the computer you bought for your home. 
Uh, you can do the post-production sound for essentially free. I think all that stuff is available online. And now you can distribute it for free. Hmm. You know, that last gatekeeper is gone. You can put it, you know, you may have to pay five bucks for extra bandwidth on WordPress or, you, or you know, 50 bucks a year to Vimeo if you want it in good quality. You can get it out to the world. The, the problem, of course, is, you know, marketing and getting people to see it. Um, that, that's the great mystery. But you can now break through and in your backyard make something that can be seen in every corner of the world. Hmm. The the missing piece still is that no one knows how to monetize this yet. No one really knows how to charge for that and to make a living at it. But you, you're no longer like that guy standing outside the door with a script in his hand, knocking and hoping someone will let you in. You can be the, the filmmaker who has the property. And, and, and that's really, you ask, how do you get people to see your stuff? I think if you're the kind of guy who is willing to put out that effort, to make something or have a friend who wants to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, and that's a uh, it's it's interesting because there there are definitely um, very very strong schools of of thought on that idea, <laughs> and there, there are some who would say, "Oh my goodness, these DSLR cameras are being embraced by George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and all these guys, and we've got this thing that literally, uh, I mean, there's 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 movies being picked up." for three, four million bucks that were shot on a camera that I could go and get at a box store. Um, and so we, we've got that on the one hand. Um, and then there, there are others who say, well, if you try to shoot it for free, you're not going to have the union actors. You're not going to have the, the union director. You're not going to have the talent. And it's going to show. And you might actually um, be detracting from um, how people are going to see you. So, so what what do you think about that? I mean, in 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 that respect, is it is it wiser maybe to put your energies into a smaller thing like maybe webisodes, like six to eight minute, that you can actually put a lot more production resources into, even though the the tools are kind of free. Yeah, no, I I, I think doing it in in you know six to eight minute chunks is it makes a lot more sense because people I think are just leery in general of clicking on the thing that lasts for 45 or 50 minutes if they don't know anything about it. You know, you're willing to invest five minutes in a way you're not willing to say, okay, I'll sit here for 45 minutes and see if I like it. And what you really want to do is, well, first of all, just creatively speaking, I want to say what this revolution in technology means is that we as screenwriters are no longer trapped. You know, if you look if you travel around the country, you see, you go to coffee houses, you hear people singing at night, you see huge amounts of talent that will never get a record deal or a big record deal, will never be on American Idol. You know, you go to poetry readings and you hear talented poets and, and short story writers. For centuries, artists in every field have been able to practice their art, look for an audience, you know, and go there before the public. Screenwriters and TV writers have never been able to do that because our stuff was always incomplete. So you can be a songwriter by night and a whatever by day. Well, now you can do the same thing as a screenwriter, mm. right? You can make your art, you can make it public, and you can still have a day job, which I think, you know, you couldn't do as a filmmaker before, and I think that's a, a great move forward. But really the advantage to doing this, if it works for you, the one thing that everybody in the industry wants other projects more than anything else is a pre-sold title. They want your 
audience. They mm. want to know, I picked this up because X many people are already reading it, and they've proven to me that it's successful. They've proven to me there's a market for it. So if you are one of those fortunate ones who can make something, six to eight minute webisodes, and get that following, then you don't have to be that guy standing out the door saying, here, read my script. They'll actually come to you because they'll see your numbers, and they'll say, hey, this guy has a million people following him. Let's see what he can do for us. Hmm. Now, it's hard to get that million people, but then it's hard to write that great script. It's hard to direct that great script. It's hard. Everything, you know, what we do is hard. To do well is hard. Mm-hmm. Let's move on maybe and uh, and talk a little bit about breaking in tips. Um, and so beyond uh, just taking your pilot and shooting it yourself or shooting webisodes, if somebody was going to go to, to Hollywood and, uh, you know, they've, they've, they've landed um, in at LAX and, and they're ready to be a TV writer, what, what would your advice to them be? First thing is I'd say to start meeting other writers, find a writer's group, go where writers hang out, find aspiring actors and directors. It's really so much easier if you're here in film school because you have a community of people who are all doing the same things. I guess, you know, join those associations, IFP and Women in Film and all those things. It's hard to get immediately to people above you who can let you in, but it, some of these people, maybe it'll be you will rise up, but you'll have friends who are rising up at the same time. and they can help open doors for you. You know, you really want to make know as many people as you can who are trying to do the same things that you are, and to do it in a non non cynical way. Uh, I'll become this guy's friend because he's gonna get somewhere. <laughs> um, I, I think people usually see through that pretty quickly. Uh-huh. You just gotta keep writing. You just gotta do that awful boring stuff of you know sending out query letters and just trying to find a way to distinguish yourself from the thousands and thousands and thousands of other people who are trying to do the same thing. Find a hook by which you can market yourself. You know, you don't want to be the guy who has, oh, look, here's a guy with a script. That's something new, right? But, you know, if you spent the last four years putting out oil well fires in Kuwait, they're in the place in town that won't have a meeting with you. Because, you know, most executives are young men and they want to hear from somebody who's been putting out oil well fires. <laughs> uh, they'll listen to your stories about that and then they'll read your stuff and listen to your pitch and, uh, in return. You know, Diablo Cody, uh, unfortunately, she's done this because she, this is a great genius. She took off her clothes, right? She went to work as a stripper and wrote a blog and then a book about it. And then she wrote a script and then she had meetings and, I guarantee you that, you know, before Diablo Cody was Diablo Cody, you know, she got a lot of meetings because all the male executives wanted to look across and, and imagine what she looked like without her clothes on. And then the female executives probably want to look across and imagine whether or not they looked better or worse than she did without their clothes on. It wouldn't have worked if she didn't have that voice and that talent, but that shtick opened a lot of doors. Figure out something about yourself that is special and marketable and present yourself that way. Make yourself into a brand. Everything is about branding these days. You might as well join the parade. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've, I've heard it said so many times that somebody entering today really has to be much more of an entrepreneur than they were maybe 10, 20 years ago. Absolutely. First of all, everything is so 
chaotic. You just can't. Well, you've never been able to count on coming here and getting a job and living on that for the rest of your life. <laughs> Even if you made the sale, made your first sale, made your 10th sale, I think you have to be aware that it can all go away tomorrow and you should be working on other angles as well. Everybody I know who is working is working in multiple fields. You know, they're writing books. Again, Again, books are the place where the gatekeepers are gone too. Lee Goldberg and I have a series of books called The Dead Man. It's a series of nappy horror action novels. It actually started off as a spec pilot we wrote that we were not able to sell. And we just said, hey, you know, this would be a great series of novels. Why don't we just publish them ourselves on the Kindle? So we wrote the first couple, and then we started bringing in a bunch of really talented mystery and horror and science fiction writers, uh, Western writers, too, to write episodes for us, if you will, and we hmm. started publishing them monthly, <laughs> just just ourselves, just on the Kindle. Wow. Um, and after the I think fifth one went up, Amazon came to us and said, you know, guys, uh, this is a phenomenal project and a great business model, and we don't think you're selling in the numbers that you should be selling, so would you be interested in having us take over as a publisher? Wow. And we'll publish it as ebooks and paperbacks and audio editions. Um, yeah, it's like you have to lower your royalty, but then I guarantee you, you'll sell a lot more copies. It's absolutely true. Uh, so we, we said yes in a flash. But, and our first paperback anthology comes out next month, I believe. That's our first audio anthology. Where our ninth ebook is just out now. I think it's our ninth. <laughs> we sold them 12 originally, and I think we're negotiating to do another year's worth now. Wow. But, you know, we just we did that because we wanted to do it. If we had had to come up with the idea, you know, write a couple of books and sample outlines and then start shopping them around to publishers, you know, we'd, we'd still be waiting to hear back from people. It just it, now you can take control of your own destiny, and if your if your material is good and if you market it at all. You know, you can find audience. That's why I um, chose to do writing the pilot as an ebook on my own. I just thought, you know, okay, uh, I'm not sure what Wiley. If I try to sell this to Wiley, it'll be a year before it comes out because book publishing still works on a 19th century model. Mm -hmm. Everything takes forever, and by that time, three more people may have written this book. I can't believe no one has written it yet. So instead, I commissioned the cover. And I had the thing formatted, and I had it copy edited. I spent a total of four or five hundred dollars for all of that, I think, and just put it out myself, and then started a blog, writingthepilot.com, to promote it a little. And you know, it hasn't. It's not outselling um, Steve Larson yet, but <laughs> I, uh, it's looking like by the by the time it's been on the air for a year, I will have made more from this than I have off of successful television writing in nine years. Wow. So uh, as an experiment, it's worked out pretty well, I think. Very, very cool. Very cool. Well, and so uh, writingthepilot.com is a place that uh, people can reach you and as well Twitter at writingthepilot. Yes, I'm, I'm a very bad tweeter, but uh, it, it does, the account does exist and I keep saying I'll get better at it. Uh-huh. If you sign up to follow, you may be surprised every once in a while. <laughs> cool. Well, I know uh, we've taken a lot of time today, and uh, I think that we've covered quite a bit. And I definitely urge people not only to to buy the ebook, or actually it's in paperback now too, right? Writing the pilot. Paperback. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. The ebook or the or the paperback. 
writing the pilot and also successful television writing because they're both excellent, excellent resources. And um, and I really appreciate you providing these things, uh, especially on pilots. Pilots is something that people have been so confused about. They know they need them, but there have been, there have been so few resources. And I highly, highly recommend this one. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Bill, for taking the time. And best of luck to you. And to you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, today we're going to be focusing on... Haha, <laughs> focus. The Oki.net USB Focus Controller, or FC1, and also the Oki Mini Controller, the MC1, and these are for Canon DSLR cameras. First, we're going to look at the FC1 focus controller, which you see on the left here next to a small HD DP6 screen. And this is hooked up to a Canon 60D camera. And what does this do? This lets you change the focus. It lets you immediately jump to different focus points for racking focus and control many other functions in the camera as we're going to see. First, I'm going to turn on the DP6. I'm going to turn on the Oki controller. Turn on the 60D and you'll see we've got to enable live view mode, which we can do by holding down this upper button here. One of the things I love about the Oki is that it's got every single function labeled on the front. So what are some of the things we can do? I'm going to switch to a, an info mode so that we can see. You can hit the top and bottom buttons on the right. This takes us into settings mode and this shows in a blue indicator at the top where we can change the ISO. Look at the ISO numbers jumping up and down on the bottom right of the small HD screen. We can also change the aperture. You'll see on the bottom left here, the aperture number changing. We can hit the third button and that lets us change the shutter speed. And then at the bottom, you can also change exposure compensation as well. If we hit the top and bottom buttons again, you see the indicator light change to a pinky purple, and that lets us change the focus zone. You'll notice it jumps when we first set it. That's because the focus zone in the Oki controller is a different focus zone than the camera. So make sure that you use one or the other. So after we change that focus zone to where we like it, we can jump back out into focus mode. We see the green indicator on the top. We can switch the camera to a, a mode that lets us show the full image and see how I turn this dial in the center and it changes where the camera's focused. The first thing we want to do is set the near stop and the far stop or infinity point. And these should be set even if you don't think you'll need them. The reason is, the, and we'll discover a little bit more about the Canon USB protocol in a bit, but basically the Canon USB protocol sends messages to the lens but does not receive messages back from the lens. And so it says, keep focusing, keep focusing, keep focusing, keep focusing. And so if it sends too many messages past the infinity point, one thing is that that can actually wear the autofocus motor. The other thing is that say it sends 10 me messages forward, then it thinks it has to come 10 back and that might actually make it go past the point that it needs. So suffice it to say, set the near stop and far stop. So to set the near stop, I'm going to go to the nearest point that I could possibly want to go, obviously not past the minimum focus distance of your lens. And then I'm just going to hold down the near stop, and you'll see the button at the top blink. 
then I'm going to go to the actual object that I want to focus on in the near point and then set my far focus rack point, if you want to call it that, and then go to what I would consider infinity in this scene, which is not actually infinity, and set that far stop. So now we actually have four focus points set. I'm going to engage the recording with the button at the bottom, and let's have some fun. So I'm going to push my far focus point, and then I'm going to push my uh, near focus point. Hey, let's go all the way to infinity. And let's go all the way to the near stop. You can have a lot of fun with this. Something that I would mention is that you will notice a little bit of stair stepping, and that is a limitation of the Canon protocol. You see it jump a little bit as it goes from one point to the other. And this will be more or less depending on which lens you're using. Some lenses will jump further with each step. Some will jump less. You'll also notice that on some noisier lenses, you're going to hear that stepping in the autofocus motor. If you're recording sound in a quiet environment, you might hear this. I would recommend that you use Canon lenses where possible. They seem to be quieter and more suited to this. It will work with other lenses. I've tried it on a Sigma macro lens and I've heard of it being used on other brands as well. But your, your experience may vary. They may not be quite as um, well suited to this type of control. Also, it should be noted, uh, noted that if you change the focal length, in other words, change the, the, the zoom on a zoom lens, this may change the focus points and also how far the steps travel. So basically what you do, once you've zoomed to the shot that you want, then set your focus points and go from there and don't zoom within the shot and expect those preset points to work. We can, of course, stop the recording. If you hold down the red button at the bottom, you can engage a still capture, which also works in the non-movie modes. And really neat, you can also use these buttons on the left as more of a camcorder style changing of the focus, which may be easier if it's mounted on a tripod, for instance, and you have to control it with your thumb or your fingers rather than having that motion around the rotary control. You can also push the bottom left button when you're not in record mode. A quick push will give you a zoom. And if you hold it down, again, not in record mode, this will engage autofocus. Now, an important note about autofocus is once you've engaged that and the auto metering, it will skew all of your focus points. So make sure you do this before you set your focus points or else you're going to have to clear them and set them again. And at the top left, you'll notice a step button. And what this does is it changes the intervals that you're stepping. There's a big step mode that is useful for just jumping very quickly between focuses, but it, you can't really fine tune very well with that mode. And it's also definitely not smooth. There's a very, very small step mode, which is useful for getting fine, fine, fine focus points, but it is really, really slow. And if you did want the smoothest focus change, that is the way to do it. But for most practical purposes, I've found that the, the medium step mode is the most useful. So what would you use the Oki FC1 focus controller for? Well, if you have the camera at the end of a jib, crane, or even a tall tripod where it's tough to access the controls, 
This controller is indispensable. It is very important to note that as you've seen in this video, there is stair-stepping in the autofocus motor. I do need to clarify again that this is not a problem with the Oki controller. It relates back to limitations of the Canon USB protocol, which will affect any brand of USB controller. The Canon protocol functions by sending a series of jump messages to the autofocus motor. It does not pull the focus in a totally smooth manner and cannot gradually change the speed of the focus pull. You have those three um, stair-stepping amounts. You can go big jumps, medium jumps, or small jumps, but they are jumps. Now, for many purposes and with many lenses, this may be within tolerable parameters. However, if you're recording audio in a very quiet location and you don't have a quiet lens, say for instance, a non-Canon lens, or if you need a very smooth focus pull, this may not be for you. In that case, you would have to go with a, a physical rack focus device. There are many on the market with a great range of different prices. That said, it is an incredibly useful unit. As a matter of fact, even indispensable for situations where you're not close to the camera. I've even been shooting at the zoo where I have to put the camera up way up high over a fence. And it's like, well, what do you do if you need to adjust the the ISO or, or um, adjust the, the focus when it's way up high? With this, you can do that. It's very well built. It feels solid with easy to read labels, which makes a difference as compared to some of the other ones on the market. There's a, a perfect amount of resistance to the center knob You'll find you need some way of mounting it in your setup if you're not going to actually hold it in your hand, but there's a standard uh, one quarter 20 threaded mounting hole on the back, so it's not too hard. In this setup, I'm using an articulating arm I got from jag35.com. There's lots of other options out there that you could use. Okay, and now we're looking at the Oki Mini Controller, the MC1. This is brand new, and this is a much simpler controller. It does not have focus, but for many applications, this is very, very handy. Say, for instance, with a shoulder rig where you might have a physical follow focus with your, your left thumb, but you still need to have one hand holding the rig at all times, you can have this controller so that you can enable the ISO, aperture, shutter, zoom, etc., all with the other finger. You notice there are four simple buttons on the left. The bottom one is the power and mode switch. You'll see a green light change to change to a blue light, change to a pinky purple, and back again, and that's how you know which mode is set. And it's super, super simple. The green mode is the ISO change mode. So you just enable that green mode, and up and down makes the ISO go, guess what? Up and down. You see it on the small HD screen here going up and down. Very easy. You change the mode with one simple press to the bottom and that gets you into aperture mode. You can go again, you guessed it, up and down to change the aperture. And you see where I'm going here. Another hit gets you to the purple mode and that lets you change the shutter speed up and down. Now here's where it gets a little bit different. One more press gets you into aqua mode. Ooh, that sounds exciting. Up presses give you the zoom mode. Holding it down gives you an autofocus and metering. Holding down the bottom button enables or disables live view mode. And then at any time, 
the top button starts and stops the video. Very, very handy. And holding it down enables image capture, whether you're in movie mode or not. So very, very simple device, incredibly handy and quite reasonable. One other incredibly useful feature about the MC1, Canon DSLR cameras are limited to recording 12 minutes at a time or four gigabytes at a time. The Oki MC1 mini controller has a repeat function where it will automatically stop and quickly restart the recording every 11 minutes. If you're recording events, this could be the deal maker right there. I've heard that this feature may be coming to the Oki FC1 focus controller as well. This would be a firmware update and you would need to send it into Oki to get this done, but it's encouraging to know that they are continually working on developing their products. Watch their website at oki.net, that's okii.net, for details about this and also more information about these great products. Just like the FC1, the MC1 uses standard quarter 20 threaded mounting holes. There are three of them on this one, on the back, on the front, and the top. And uh, that's very, very handy for flexibility. I should mention that Oki, Small HD, and Jag35 are sponsors of the podcasts that I do. That said, this is a fair review of their products. The Oki FC1 Focus Controller and MC1 Mini Controller as well as the small HD DP6 monitor that I used in the demo are highly recommended. Keep in mind that there are caveats about the Canon USB protocol and do make sure that your camera is on the supported list at oki.net as well as that you have a, at least a good percentage of Canon lenses that you can use. Thanks for watching. I'm Gray Jones with video tips for the TV Writer Podcast. You can check out more on my YouTube channel. Just search for Graham A. Jones or at tvwriterpodcast.com. See you next time. Bye-bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web.